Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Unheard Ideas, I'm Florence Reed. We live in strange times, there's no denying it. But who can help us see through the mists? Well, we think we found someone. He is a Lacanian psychoanalyst, philosopher and author of a new book, Surplus Enjoyment, a guide for the non-perplexed. His name is Slavoj Žižek and he joins us live from his home in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Hi Slavoj. Thank you very much, it's an honor for me to be here, to be ironic, forget about unheard, I like to be a part of your gang, of your herd here. <laughs> We're in the danger zone of becoming tribal before we've even started. So yeah, let's yeah. start with surplus enjoyment. Your, your book outlines the, the problems with surplus enjoyment. What are they? The important thing, and Jacques Lacan, when he developed the notion of surplus enjoyment, He really developed it only in the last 15 years of his life, but it's interesting, with strict reference to Marx, to Marx's notion of mere wert, surplus value. Because Marx saw clearly, we should also criticize Marx and so on, but he saw clearly that the basic feature which makes capitalism so different is that it doesn't aim at a stable, normal state. It's always more surplus, surplus. You don't produce in order to enjoy consumption, or you don't earn money. You earn money in order to earn more money, to put it like this. This type of uh, extensive surplus, more and more, is what defines modern capitalism. But I don't think the way back is the conservative one, which is, we hear often even from so-called deep ecologists today, which is, we have to return to some more modest, balanced way of life. What is the way out of this then? If we are not doing the conservative return to tradition, how do we exit this state of surplus? I remain here a Marxist in the sense that Uh, The only liberation goes through capitalism. Capitalism, as Marx wrote in Communist Manifesto, together with Engels, but especially elaborated it later, there is something nonetheless so liberating, emancipatory, in this fluidification of everything, permanent, dynamic, and so on and so on. And there is no step back from 
this. There is no return to balance. And let me give you a plastic example, simple one. You know, when many, not only deep ecologists, generally ecologists today, like to say we have to come to terms with, terms with the fact that we are just one of the living species on our earth, that we are not in any way privileged and so on. But are they, and then they talk, and I'm in sympathy with that, even about the idea of taking into account the rights of other animals, of plants, even of rivers, of beautiful canyons, whatever. But are they aware that when they talk like this, although the content of what they are saying is modesty, be just what you are, they at the same time assume that we humans are able to take an, as it were, an elevated universal positions. We are made in this very modesty, a kind of universal caretakers, because plants, animals are not aware of their rights. We are. We should be responsible, as it were, for everything. And I think at the level of ecology, this is the solution. Yes, on the one hand, be more modest, because we are more and more aware that we can only survive within certain natural parameters, enough oxygen in the air, not too warm, and so on and so on. But at the same time, because of wild capitalist development in the last half a century, we are universal beings. We screwed it up. And here I go in two directions even further. It's not just that we simply screwed it up. You must have heard what is my eternal dogma uh, when people say nature has a certain balance and we humans with our hubris screwed it up. No, look at nature as far as we know about it from before there were human beings. Are we aware our main sources of energy, oil, coal? Are we even aware what kind of mega catastrophes had to happen on our earth for us to get those sources? So, sorry for tasteless remark. If nature is our mother, it's a dirty bitch of a mother. You know, I don't believe in any natural balance, which is dangerous and sad news for us. I don't think there is any natural balance to which we can return. You know why I was fascinated with uh, the whole debate about, uh, about uh, uh, the pandemic and so on? Because it was one of those beautiful examples where you cannot say, now it's no, not a time for philosophy, now we are dealing with real problems. Our dealing with the pandemic, didn't it confront us with the most basic philosophical questions? In the sense of those who resisted wearing masks, vaccination, social lockdowns, and so on, wasn't their idea a certain notion of human beings as free beings? And their notion, their implicit idea was what the state authority is asking for us is something that encroaches upon, that limits 
in some basic sense, what does it mean to be a human being? Now, I am more as you, and I proudly assume the term. Now, let me add some provocations to you to make it more spicy. First, are we aware that to be free, not in the abstract sense of suicidal explosion, like in revolutions and so on, but to be free in our daily, ordinary life means that you are free only within a certain network of implicit and explicit, but especially implicit, unwritten often rules. What does it mean, freedom? Or most elementally, freedom is freedom of thought. It means, because we think in language, that I have to totally subordinate myself to rules of language. I have to think fluently in language. What does it mean, social freedom? It means that I expect others to obey certain basic rules. If I pass them on the street, they will not spit at me or beat me or whatever. So that's for me a good, not so much Marxist as Hegelian, returning to Hegel rule. Hegel's notion of what he calls in German Sitten, it's collective mores, mostly unwritten standards, which form the substance of our being. And here, to return to our topic, you know where surplus enters? You British should know it. You are the masters of this, of what? We usually think when I'm in certain social circles, or I try to become a member of it, that I have to learn the rules. No. Even more than to learn the rules, you have to learn the second level, unwritten rules, which tell you how to deal with the explicit rules. Isn't the basic paradox of our social life that we have rules, but at the same time, you are expected to violate these rules in a very precise, codified way. For example, this is why I think my greatest educational period was when I was serving the army, old Yugoslav army, 76. I noticed how you have rules, discipline, and then you have a whole network of implicit rules which told you how to violate rules and to return back to sexuality and to the topic of surplus. These many gay people don't like when I point this out, but it's so true. On the one hand, at the explicit level, the army universe was totally homophobic. If you were discovered to be gay, you were dismissed from the army, but this took a couple of days to get the proper uh, document. And during that time, you were publicly beaten, mocked. It was hell. Okay. But do you know that at the same time, I never was in a social space so penetrated by homosexual innuendos as in the army. Like, sorry if you know it, this is my classic example. Even now it haunts me. When I met a soldier in my unit in the morning, we didn't say each other to each other, hello, good morning. The strict formula was to say, 
uh, 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 smoke my dick in Serbo-Croatian. And then the answer was, with pleasure, after you smoke mine, something like that. It sounds a bit like the British public school system, like the Eatons and Westminsters of the world. The British public school system is the ultimate model of this. And you know what we shouldn't forget here? That's surplus at its purest, that this is not just, as some people think, a kind of a compromise, that the system has to tolerate a certain level of subversion. No, it's the opposite. The system needs this obscenity to reproduce itself. The, the, the main point of analysis of ideology is that how what may appear a violation of rules in reality sustains the system. What happens to those who commodify that relationship, because that's what I'm interested in when it comes to the pandemic. If you're an anti-capitalist, you know, you look at something like Big Pharma, Pfizer being a, being a good example of a company who's managed to commodify a crisis here in the last few years, and they've particularly made money out of commodifying the fear of the unvaccinated. So by pressuring, putting pressure on those who do not follow the social rules surrounding vaccination, public health, they have been able to profit hugely over the last few years. What do you say to that? How, how can you escape well, I that? Hear, I, maybe we don't share the same view about uh, vaccination, but basically my answer here would have been a very simple one. Uh, COVID was for me something that, I even put this openly, many people laughed at me, that really demanded as an answer something that I call a new form of communism, which means to uh, establish, not so much to vaccinate people forcefully, but to establish some kind of, not only nationally universal, but even global healthcare, exchange of data and so on. We need some type of global coordination, which will not be left to market alone. I'm not talking about abolish the market. Today, a world government probably would have meant even more corruption or whatever. But things have to be coordinated at some level. And here, the system failed. I think that with some, uh, it was not a necessary corruption of the system. We will need more and more this type of, uh, let's call it global measures. Just imagine effects of global warming. Are you aware that a whole part, there are parts of the world which, has, which are already becoming non-inhabitable? Like I have friends, uh, I know people in some Arab countries and they tell me, listen, the whole area south of Iraq, Emirates and so on, they reach up to 55 degrees Celsius every summer. And even for them who are born there, no, this is too much. Parts are non-inhabitable. On the other hand, who knows what is happening now in northern Siberia uh, with uh, a melting of permafrost. It can be a catastrophe. It is releasing already in the air more poisonous gases than all the cars that run on the earth. But at the same time, new fertile areas and so on and so on. So to cut a long story short, we 
ain't seen nothing yet with regard to immigration movements. And either we will somehow coordinate it or there will be only for this a global war. We need coordination here. The only so uh So we if we're talking about co- coordination, we've got these two wars then. We've got the war against climate change, which needs a coordinated effort to push back. And then we've got the war against the pandemic, COVID-19, which have we seen over the last few years has created this kind of global allegiance between countries. There's this third war that's the actual war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And you have been surprisingly soft, I would say, on NATO, the, the coordinated body that is instigating the defense against Russia in Ukraine. Do, do, do you see that there, there is a comparison there between these, these, these three? This, I know, this position of mine costed me dearly. I was already proclaimed an official ideology, ideologist of, uh, of a NATO war machine of industrial military complex and so on and so on. No, I think, you know what is the problem that I see here? Uh, why I fully support Ukraine, with all the critical points about it. We don't have time. I could go through in detail through the list of what they are making wrong. But where is any doubt about who is basically right? Look, Putin, when he announced the war on 23rd of February, did you notice that he mentioned just one name critically, Lenin? And he said explicitly, Ukraine was Lenin's invention. And he even, it was a very obscene statement, he uh, referred ironically to Ukrainians tearing down Lenin's statue. And he said, ah, you want want, uh, decommunization? Wait for us, we will bring decommunization to the end there. You know what is such a strange thing for me? If you read at not only at Rus- what Russians are doing, but their ideology. It is explicitly something that what cannot but designate, not even in this uh, purely abstract term, but a form of neo-fascism. Fascism means you want modernization, but without the destructive, liberal, too much individualism effects. Isn't this exactly what they are doing, introducing traditional ethical standards against LGBT LGBT, and so on and so on? Uh, 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 And uh, you don't have to read between the lines here, not only Dugin, who is too popular, but the philosopher who is the main reference of Putin is Ivan Ilyin, who in 1920s created, he called it like that, a concept of Russian fascism. He says, no, Italian, German fascism later are two Europeans still marked by Protestantism, Catholicism, and authentic fascism can come out only out of Russia. And here we, uh, I see what Putin is doing, not as some kind of irrationality, but he explicitly refers to the Russian imperial tradition, to the spheres of influence, and so on and so on, and simply denies the right of a nation to exist. As was this NATO expansion and so on. 
look, I'm part of this polemic. All I can tell you is this. I see it almost in the opposite way, namely in the sense that, look, even in Slovenia, not to mention countries like Bulgaria uh, and so on, uh, uh, Baltic countries, they are scared like shit. They are terribly afraid. And when people oppose NATO, I say also, but I say, okay, but Russia is a threat, not an implicit threat. They openly are claiming this is also our part of influence. They are scared. Offer them another, uh, another option for safety. So to go back to your question, I want to know what's happened to the anti-war left. I mean, this feels like a movement that has just disappeared. And, and how are we going to get it back after the war in Ukraine if, if we have given in to the likes of NATO? I mean, how, how do we resuscitate that okay, movement? Or is, or is it dead? Is it gone? Yeah, I will say something really evil. Don't be mad. I think that, uh, uh, you know, pacifism is not always a virtue. In what sense? Remember, for example, that all those who occupy a country are always sincerely pacifist. I totally believe the state of Israel that they want to, the peace on the West Bank, because peace means they can swallow it in peace. It's the same with Russia today. They sincerely want peace in Ukraine, but peace means for them, let's occupy it. So I will now give you, and I wonder sincerely how you will answer to this. Do you know that in 1940, when the World War II was declared, and there was a strong tendency of the leftists in the United States, in the West, claiming this is an imperialist war, it doesn't concern us, we should stay out of it. Okay, in, in, in this sense, you know that Germany uh, spent millions supporting uh, pacifism in the United States. So I think, I accept this paradox that, okay, when you say uh, 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 anti-war pacifism and so on, what is your message to Ukrainians then? I suppose my question here is, is, is this a proper comparison between 40s Germany and present day Ukraine? Is, is, are we looking at a situation where Putin sweeps across Europe to take other countries in the way that Hitler did in, in the 1940s? Is that really what we're looking at here? It, of course, Putin is not Hitler directly. But if you read their plans, statements, and so on, it's clear, maybe I'm too crazy here, it's clear that the war is not really about a small piece of Ukraine. I'm deeply pessimist, or sorry, deeply opposed to this view. Let's make a deal. Let Putin swallow a part of southeastern Ukraine and we have peace. But they are saying it again and again, Lavrov, their foreign minister, do you know that he at some point even said openly when they asked him, okay, where is the limit? He, he openly said, basically, except maybe United, uh, United Kingdom, all of Europe should be neutralized. Even only then will Russia be, be, uh, be safe and so on. So no, 
I'm not saying it's the same with Hitler because as Hitler, because with Hitler it was clear. It wasn't enough to stop Hitler. He had to be destroyed. But I think that here, because there's, you know what, when I'm in panic now, I don't know if it was reported in your newspapers, but two days ago, when some uh, small disorders happened in the north of Kosovo, where there is the uh, Serb majority, already they started to talk. Some Russian media and some guys in the Serb parliament that the time is also approaching to denazify Kosovo. Then, already in Republika Srpska in Bosnia and so on and so on. What I find so worrying is that Russia is making it more and more clear that it's not just about Ukraine. It's about the geopolitical sphere of influence. But you, basically... you, are, you are a specialist in propaganda. I mean, you must, you must appreciate that to propagandize well, you have to make something feel global, feel universal. It, it cannot just simply be a matter of Russia. They have to, at the very least, convince Russians that this is a matter of the world. That's an old propaganda trick, isn't it? Yeah, but in, if you look closely at, is this just a propaganda trick? Look what they already did in Gruzia, Georgia. Look how it began with Crimea and so on and so on. And so I think that it's not just a propaganda trick where they really want just uh, that part, just, just a way to get, uh, to get southern Ukraine. Maybe this will be to keep a paradox for you. <laughs> but I would have said that paradoxically, uh, the only way to prevent a much larger war is to set up certain limits, to say, you know, we are all the time too obsessed with, oh my God, if we gave this, give these guns to Ukraine, is this too much? Will Putin be mad and so on and so on, be angry, explode? When we say Putin, it might explode, we might say the whole world could explode if he explodes. That's, is yeah, it, isn't that a fair, fair thing to they be are, afraid of? But are consciously playing with this fear. You know, now I will tell you something else which may interest you. My source are not Western uh, media. I don't trust them. Even I'm very clear. Who knows what's really happening in Ukraine? In, there are many honest people fighting and so on, but we don't get any clear account what's happening with all the billions that go there. What's happening with arms? Do some parts, some, uh, some, uh, some of these arms are obviously disappearing somewhere else. I, I, uh, I, I fully admit all these problems. But isn't this something absolutely unique? You have a country of 40 million people, a little bit over. Another country attacks it, claiming this country doesn't exist. Isn't this a mega dangerous precedent? Well, what happens when next week, God forbid, China decides that that is the case in Taiwan? Do we go to Taiwan's no. uh, defense? Here I have a different position. I'm not speaking in generalities and so on. Although, of course, Taiwan is also an economical miracle. Why not 
leave them alone and so on. But I would say that China, sorry, Taiwan is really, everybody admits this, a part of China. I want to tell you something else. You know what's for me the true tragedy of this war? Three things, I think, are really dangerous. The first, uh, uh, the first problem, Russia claims Ukrainians are really one of us, blah, blah. But didn't they now, through their invasion, create hatred which really didn't exist till now of Ukrainians for Russians? They, they, if some of my Ukrainian friends who are quite sympathetic to Russia said, Maybe till now Russia had a point. <laughs> now they, now they, now they screwed it up. The second thing that I fear is that because left is in some sense afraid of more supporting uh, Russia, if somehow Ukraine will survive, that it will be pushed into this conservative post-communist uh, Visegrad group of East Europeans who are much more illiberal. You know, what now Ukrainians are also fighting for their own identity in some sense. It's not clear what Ukraine, if it survives, will be. This is what Putin claims, is that he is protecting Ukraine against the wokeism of the West. So let's maybe speak about that because that links up to your surplus enjoyment, doesn't it? Here are the problems. Wokeism, if by wokeism you mean all this complex uh, political correctness, cancel culture and so on. Yes, he even uses it in his propaganda. He says, you know, you can come yes, to Russia to but, escape but, cancel but culture. You know, that's what really worries me as the long-term catastrophic prospect. That's why although I don't have any contact with him, I reacted now to a new podcast by Ho Ho Jordan Peterson, with whom I had a debate. You know, he, after formally condemning Russian attack, he basically simply fully takes side of Russia. And you know in what terms? In the terms of Western anti-liberal and anti-LGBT position. He claims that, it's a mad logic, he claims that a modern multicultural woke culture or whatever we call it can... Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's really a new transformation of Marxism and communism. So his crazy thesis is that not United States are still fighting, but Canada and Western Europe are in this deeper sense already communist. So he says Russia, and then he goes into these ridiculous details. They are building many new churches. Putin is personally, probably sincerely uh, uh, Christian and so on. That Russia is fighting for the same values as Trump in the United States. That this is an attempt to discipline Europe to save Christianity from all this. Now, if this becomes reality, this is, if you ask me, my mega problem. We, uh, I agree with Peterson, but in the opposite sense of him, when he says that the so-called civil war in the United States, civil war, for the time being civil war, between the new Republican Party Trumpian one and more liberal establishment, for him, is the same as the fight in Ukraine. If these two forces get together, if Trumpians come back to power and make pact with Putin and other authoritarian states, <clears throat> then it's very bad, not just for what is still worth saving in Europe, Europe still has a great tradition. We should criticize Europe, yes, but be afraid that, sorry, be aware that the categories which we use to criticize Europe are the European tradition of feminism, Marxism, and so on and so on. So back to that, I don't lose time to my central point. It's not just Roe versus Wade. This is just the beginning. Not only will it go further, uh, that is to say, uh, 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 difficult, uh, uh, many other difficulties like contraception and so on, but what really worries me is this. Do you know what is now happening with this? Uh, it was a much greater catastrophe than I thought. Trump's presidency, the key element was that he nominated three Supreme Court judges who are young, young. We are stuck with them for 20, 30 years. Do you remember the movie Pelican Brief? You saw it. 
some reactionary big guy kills too, no? Maybe we need, it's horrible what I will say, and I hope you will say it the way I mean as a bad joke. Maybe we need a progressive pelican brief to somehow organize <laughs> the kind of a mortal accident of this, because otherwise we are lost. You know what's the truly dangerous things? thing? You know that now many states claim that the right, that if the result of elections, even these midterm elections now, is in any way not clear, and right-wingers can only cl always claim it's not clear, that the state administration, I don't know which one, maybe the local Congress, have the right simply to nominate delegates. Now, and the position of most Republican states is now, it's no longer uh, 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 Biden is our enemy, it is that Biden is not a legitimate president. I think it's no exaggeration to say that uh, the true threat to the world order today will be a confusion in United States themselves. To return to your idea of this strange coalition between the American right wing and the Russian and the Russian right and wing. the Russian politicos. agree. Maybe I don't. This this sounds like Russia Gate to me. This sounds like what people were saying about Trump the first time round on the election. Do you, do you not think that that there, there is something to be said there for a certain amount of red scare around this around this moment? I am talking about something much more dangerous. So called, they call it usual name by commentators is. Christian revolt, a new Christianity in the United States, which is nationalist and at least implicitly racist, white racist, and it's don't, the tragedy is this one, here we the left, I will now shock you even more, have to discover a positive use of state power. The strength of these new fundamentalisms is not in the state apparatus, it's more in civil society. They are much better organized than the liberal left, or however we call them. I see here the true danger. If Trump or a Trumpian wins next elections, you know that in Republican Party, it's now already getting stronger and stronger. The idea, this kind of a geopolitical understanding, which is, okay, Russia has its own right there, it's not our war, keep out of it, and so on and so on. And my worry is then the next one, I hope we agree here. Uh, don't underestimate the extent to which Russia is successful in its propaganda in Latin American countries, African countries, and many, uh, and many Asian countries. These and are predominantly is, Christian countries as well, I presume. Also, but also non-Christian countries. Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know what, for me, the model if this more authoritarian Russian, let's call it, I simplify it, Russian-Chinese model prevails. You remember what happened in Afghanistan after Taliban took over. Immediately, they made a pact with China, a brutal, egotist pact. You leave us alone, 
Taliban said, what we want to do here with women and so on, don't mess. And we will not mess with what you are doing to Muslims, Uyghurs, in your own country. This kind of a very brutal, cynical, neutral tolerance. How does the West actually push back against this potential dangerous coalition that you're speaking about? Because Putin would argue that the culture wars happening in the West are the things that are weakening them to being able to successfully defend against Russia in Ukraine. So is it just, do you have any agreement with him there? <laughs> Putin, as much as Putin uh, 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 warns against the West and so on, he secretly, secretly, not even secretly, I think that Putin's great insight came after uh, uh, Afghanistan fiasco. He thinks that the West is too weak that the West doesn't have the will to resist. Uh, and uh, here I also disagree with some people who are otherwise my friends. Here I am, my God, a feminist. You remember my friend, Yanis Varoufakis, his first reaction to the, to the Taliban victory in Afghanistan was, yeah, we should help women them, women will be in trouble. But nonetheless, this was a great defeat of Western imperialism, you know. Ah, I don't like this logic, which is, I think, the worst old leftist logic, which is the main thing is that, is that the enemy loses, and then if women or whichever group suffers, okay, we should say to women, Afghani women, what? Sorry, girls. You have to suffer a little bit. The main thing is to, you, you know, what the West should do here I'm more radical. I think that the great problem, I'm not saying anything original, in the West is this obsession with uh, this new form of anti-racist, anti-sexist struggle. Let's call it whatever you want. Cancel political correctness and so on and so on. It's a new hyper-normativity, which I think uh, blurs and spoils the true actual leftist task, which is, for me, in spite of all compromises, represented by people like, up to a point, I'm critical of them, but nonetheless, Jeremiah Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, and so on and so on. I, maybe I'm too naive here, but I think a, there are things which are not bad in liberal tradition. Don't just dismiss liberalism as neoliberalism. Never forget that feminism, socialism, they emerged out of liberal tradition. Yes, first you had human rights, which were, I agree, secretly spinned. They meant really the rights of independent white men. But then Mary Wollstonecraft said, why not women? Then blacks in Haiti said, why not blacks? Then workers said, that's socialism. Yes, human rights, but you can only enjoy human rights in certain material conditions, healthcare, education, and so on and so on. So I think that only this type of renovated left can save what is worth saving in liberalism. If 
liberalism will remain this type of this type of uh, uh, this politically correct insistence of rules. You say something wrong, you never know what will happen, and so on. I'm not morally against it. I'm purely politically against it because I had contacts with them. And look, let me now. I will say something for which I believe, and so on. But listen, yes, absolutely, for LGBT rights and so on. You know, I have many supporters there. I meet with them regularly. But let's face it, around 90% of people are what is usually called today straight, bi binary, no, and so on. Don't, don't act as if you are at least implicitly making them guilty, you know, as if if you are straight, you somehow participate in oppression and so on and so on. The whole strategy is wrong here. And I'm more and more convinced that, that uh, so-called political correctness, my problem with it is not that it's too radical and so on. But it's a fake radicalism. It's a way to avoid true problems. I know so many examples, friends are sending them to me all the time from United States, where, you know, this is no big corporate practice. You find somebody not quite on the top, but a little bit below the top of a corporation who did something inappropriate and with all the pomposity you fire him, and then, oh, you did your great duty, and nothing changes in real exploitation, and so on, and so on. I mean, uh, I mean, the, uh, what is, I, I think that aren't these uh, Trump alt-right vulgarians, tasteless guys? And why tasteless? Because, back to unwritten rules, you know what was Trump's great invention for me? A living democracy more or less works only if all sides ex uh, 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 accept, respect, implicit rules. How do you do something and so on? Trump was systematically violating these rules. You know what's the paradoxical result? Would you agree or not? I would say that would be my alliance of LGBT blacks with white silent majority when Conservatives say uh, family values. We shouldn't just play this marginal game. What about uh, polyamory? What about that? No, we should say, who are you to say about it? You can demonstrate with simple analysis that uh, modern neoliberal capitalism, beginning with Reagan, did more to destroy families and, uh, and, and uh, commu local communal life then all the gay propaganda together. They are ruining families. So I, my idea would be, you see how I would change the terrain. So we, we would return to family. So in some way we would return to tradition. You spoke at the beginning about you reject the conservative idea of returning to tradition, but here you're advocating for the family. I would say, which tradition? You know that uh, even in medieval times and so on, here I was convinced by these slightly revisionist historians like David Graeber and so on, you know that the dark times were not in at all level as dark as we think. For a long time, 
done discreetly, and we should not do that. I know uh, homosexuality was much more tolerated, and so on and so on. This fixed sexual difference is a thing of modernity. Unfortunately, we must admit it. It's not something that is dragging on from from medieval times and so on and so on. What I would say is this. I hope you will agree, okay, with this formula, another madness. We need more dogma, dogmaticism, but careful, a good one. Look. But we can all say that. We can all say we want a good dogma that agrees with us and makes us happy. They exist. I will demonstrate it to you. Did you notice the question of torture? Uh, Rumsfeld began with it, this uh, boarding or what, waterboarding is not torture, all that stuff. Torture was in the last decade or two de facto legitimized. I would like to live, this is my positive dogma, in a society where certain values for which we were fighting for a long time, exclusion of racism, total sexual liberation of women, not in this oppressive sense. I agree with this critique of the first generation feminists. For them, sexual freedom means we can sleep with many men, blah, 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 which then men took over and so on. So freedom also in the sense of not choosing sex, at least not normative sex, all that, that should become unquestionable. And what is happening now is that, and that's horrible, that's regression. We have again to debate about this. Do we have the right to abortion? What does it mean rape? Isn't it sad to live in a society where you even have to debate all these questions? But it, it, but, feels, it feels that, that we are living in a society where there is so much intrafighting, there is so much culture war, that we have to go back to square one on these questions because people have lost so much meaning about why they live. What, it, what does it mean to live? I think that, that fundamentally, lots of people are starting to ask that again, where they used to have institutions like religion or the family that gave them purpose. They, they, they no longer have purpose. I mean, to return to surplus, yeah, but sur- surplus enjoyment, they, be, they have too much yeah, and they also have nothing. But it will have to be a new form of solidarity. I don't believe in, in neoconservatives who want simply to return to some old values. You know, modern global capitalism is immanently multicultural in a bad sense. It likes each group to keep in its own space what you do there is your problem and so on and so on. I think that we lost so much ideologically in the last two decades. Another reason I will give you. You know how Corbyn in the UK or Bernie Sanders are denounced as uh, worse than socialists, secretly communists, and so on. Do a simple experiment. Uh, Look at European, not extreme like Olof Palme, but regular social democracy half a century ago. They were much more to the left than Bernie Sanders or or Corbyn uh, today. So, uh, and if, and another important thing we learned from Ukraine war, from the pandemic and so on. The thing we learned is that radical changes are possible till the pandemic. 
the official ideology was telling, no, we cannot afford this. If we raise the taxes for half a percent to the rich, everything will collapse. Then all of a sudden, in the last two years, we were able to spend trillions and so on. So don't believe the official dogma. Radical changes are possible. You but, know but now, I... now, now, in ha now in Hanover, in Germany, they are turning off the hot water at the swimming pools because they are having such a terrible gas crisis because of the situation in Ukraine. Are we not seeing now the beginnings, just the very, very beginnings of the price we're going to have to pay for these decisions? I, I have here, this, uh, here we will maybe again disagree. My position is here the one of some radical German green people who say, what if we use the Ukrainian war as a pretext to do some things like regulate consumption and so on for some steps into green economy, which in any case will be necessary? Maybe you call these people conspiracy theorists, but you will have people there asking, are you not using capitalizing, to use an ironic term, on a crisis to impose your dogma on, on people? Is this not but the, not the fear that people I, have? Okay, I will try to prove you, let me conclude with this, that it's not a dogma. Uh, when people ask me, are you nuts, communism and so on, I tell them this. Remember, one of the most disgusting events that I witnessed in the last year, I wasn't there, saw it on the media, that Glasgow meeting against global warming. All that they said in principle was true. We need global cooperation, blah, blah, blah. But nothing happens. For me, communism doesn't mean I have a secret plan to nationalize or gulags. It simply means in some sense, we know what has to be done. Global cooperation, uh, regulating certain, the consumption of certain things, oil, coal, beyond market necessities and so on. This will have to be done in one way or another. I call communism simply the system which will be able to do this. By this, I don't mean any secret dark plans, secret police or what. I simply mean what officially the media are even telling us that we should do. And that's the saddest thing. I hope we will at least agree here to end for me today, that as many theorists pointed out, we live not in just general terms, cynical times. We really live in sad, cynical times in the sense that we know where the crisis is. We even in some sense know what has to be done. But in some sense, being aware of this functions in such a perverted way that precisely because we know what it has to be done, we go on not doing it. Let me give you an example, which is my favorite one. I took it from my friend Alenka Zupancic. You know, let's say you are smoking. You know what's the usual excuse of a person who doesn't want to stop smoke? He or she says, but wait a minute, I'm free. I can stop at any moment if I want. And precisely because of this, you will never stop. You so know. We, we are addicted to chaos. We are addicted to the system we're yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yes, yes. So uh, here the question to ask, back to the title of my book, 
surplus enjoyment in the sense of how a system bribes us through perverse pleasures and so on and so on that we don't act. Again, the big mystery today is the mystery of this radical gap, that's how I see it, between our political space and some kind of, let's call it public dissatisfaction. Maybe you know it, my big problem is, uh, when was it the last election that Tony Blair won? I was in the UK and I remember two weeks before elections, there was a big opinion poll on TV, some big show, tens of thousands of people voted. Who is the most unpopular person in the UK? Tony Blair won, the most unpopular. Two weeks afterwards, he won the general election. Wasn't it the same in France, uh, 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 the Yellow Vest? An incredible dissatisfaction, it was impossible to translate it into the terms of our normal multi-party political system. The same with Podemos in Spain and so on and so on. That's what really worries me. It's not just let's defend uh, liberal democracy, is that we are approaching problems now where the political space, multi-party space that we have now, is no longer effective enough, not measured by some mystical sublime standards, by, but by even recapture caught the discontent among ordinary people, which is then brewing and uh, threatening to explode and so on and so on. We live in very dangerous times. The symbols of surplus enjoyment Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Starbucks have all fled from Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. Should we be getting rid of them from America and Europe as well? That's a a good question. On the other hand, you know, uh, I never was a fetishist of plurality in the sense of not one big company, but Many, you know how many choices that we have are false choices in the sense of you are given a basic choice, but which is meaningless. Like up till now in the United States, Republican Democratic Party, like Coke or Pepsi, like McDonald's or whatever and so on. I think that sometimes the multiplicity of choices can mask the real choice. The identification of freedom with choice is uh, fake. Remember that, modest as it was, you remember Obamacare. It was modest, but maybe it was a little bit better than nothing. Okay. Then when Trump abolished it, you know what was all the time the main argument against Obamacare? That it deprives you of a choice. They painted this false danger, the state will order you which doctor to take, and so on and so on. And we have we have to accept this. I don't want too many choices. Uh, I want to live in a society where, I even call this to provoke my friends, a good, agreeable alienation. Somehow electricity is provided. Somehow gas is provided. I don't want to debate every afternoon from whom to buy it. That's the state at its best. And even my good friend, I'm honored to say it, uh, Garcia Alvaro Linera, 
under Morales, the vice president of uh, Bolivia. He has shown this. He said that the lesson of pandemic is yes, on the one hand, the corruption of the system, how uh, uh, rich corporations use this to get even richer. But at the same time, we saw that in that, you remember the panic of the first month, of the, all the confusion and so on, that when everything is falling apart, we need something like an efficient state. So fight for good alienation uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, be careful how to use the state. I am deeply suspicious of this idea. We need local democracy where people debate all the issues and so on and so on. No, in today's complex world, if anything, we will need even more cooperation at the higher level above the state. How otherwise you would deal with millions of immigrants and so on. We are approaching a very difficult situation. But there is hope, you know why? Because it may sound an empty phrase, but you know that something really new emerges precisely when we are in deep trouble. It can be a catastrophe, but magic things happen at that point. So I believe in materialist miracles. By miracle, I don't mean <laughs> materialist wonder, unnatural, but something that you thought it could not happen, all of a sudden it happens. With that little glimmer of hope, I think I'll liberate you to your afternoon, Slavoj. You know, yeah, it's yeah, small, yeah. but it's there, and that's the most important thing. Thank you so much for your time, Slavoj. Thank you, and please remember that beneath your beautiful liberal appearance, now your Stalinist self should come up. I wish you all the best. The media like yours are one of the few things that made uh, internet podcasts desirable, you know. Otherwise, I still, I don't have Facebook and I don't have Instagram. In my Stalinism, they would be prohibited, you know. Well, that's, I'm glad, I'm glad that we at least will not be got rid of in your, under your program. <laughs> no, 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 you will not. Still, you will be censored and you will get, okay, as the sign of my benevolence, I can tell you, if you do some mistake, you will just get a year or two of 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 re-education. Not re that's okay. No no hard labor. No hard labor. No hard labor. That was Slavoj Žižek, philosopher and author of the new book *Surplus Enjoyment: A Guide for the Non-Perplexed*. I'm not sure I feel any less perplexed after talking to him. It certainly was an interesting conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for watching. This was Unheard Ideas. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.